This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Dr. Anthony Garcia? Anthony Garcia was born in Los Angeles, California on June 9, 1973. He graduated from high school in 1991 and went on to California State University, where he graduated with average grades. In May 1999, he graduated with a medical degree from the University of Utah. His grades were poor. He entered a family practice residency at a hospital in Albany, New York, but was fired for a variety of reasons, including being lazy and arrogant. In July 2000, Anthony started working at Creighton University Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, as a resident in the pathology department. It was a four-year program. At first, the faculty members believed that he was hardworking and diligent, but over time, they started to doubt his abilities and professionalism. They found him to be immature and disrespectful. One of the physicians in the department, Chandra Butra, admonished Anthony. She was not amused with his behavior. This left an impression on him. Anthony also ran into problems with two other physicians in the pathology department, William Hunter and Roger Brumbach. Initially, the faculty tried to work with Anthony, but eventually they told him his contract would not be renewed after his first year. Anthony managed to talk his way into a second chance, which he squandered after harassing a fellow resident. Anthony was fired 11 months into his residency. William Hunter and Roger Brumbach signed his termination letter. Two months later, Anthony found another pathology residency at a hospital in Chicago. His performance there was pretty much the same. In addition, he started having a number of health problems like migraine headaches and depression. He was treated by physicians and mental health clinicians, incurring about $80,000 in bills. He was fired from the program and returned to California to live with his parents. In 2005, he filed for bankruptcy. In 2007, he was accepted into a psychiatry residency in Louisiana, specifically LSU Health. They checked into his background and realized that he lied on his application. He was fired from the residency on February 26, 2008. Now moving to the timeline of the crimes. On March 13, 2008, Anthony returned to Omaha, Nebraska. This was just 16 days after he was fired from LSU. Sometime around 3.30 p.m., he drove his silver Honda CRV to the residence of William Hunter. In the house at this time was William's 11-year-old son, Tom, and a 57-year-old house cleaner named Shirley Sherman. A neighbor noticed the Honda CRV driving slowly and stopping as if the driver was searching for an address, and noticed the vehicle had out-of-state license plates. The neighbor would later refer to the driver as creepy. Anthony went to the front door of the house and knocked or rang the doorbell. The police would later say that it was Tom who answered the door. Shirley was upstairs cleaning. Using knives from the butcher block in the kitchen, Anthony murdered Tom and Shirley. William Hunter arrived home at 5.45 p.m. He noticed that Shirley's white Ford Taurus was still parked 
by the back door. After walking into the house, he saw Shirley face down on the floor with a knife in her neck. He then ran around the house until he found Tom, who was also dead and had a knife in his neck. William called 911. The police arrived and started their investigation. Tom and Shirley both had a number of cutting wounds around their necks. The police thought it was curious that the killer focused so much attention to the neck area. Nothing was stolen from the house, and there was no indication of a struggle. No DNA or fingerprints were found in the house that pointed to a suspect. The only decent lead the police had was the report of the silver Honda CRV. William was questioned by the police. He couldn't think of anybody who would want to harm his son or Shirley, but he did mention Anthony Garcia at one point during the questioning. The police followed up on a lot of leads, but they never looked into Anthony. They focused more on people who Tom may have had contact with when he played video games online. The police did not know which victim was the primary target. They investigated many connections to both of the victims, but they did not have any success. One theory was that somebody was trying to get back at either William or his wife, who was also a physician. This makes it even more surprising that the police didn't investigate Anthony Garcia. As the case went cold, the leading theory was that a serial killer was the culprit. Over the next several years, Anthony found and lost a number of other jobs, including one in a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. He lost that job for alcohol use and other problems. Now we move to May 12, 2013, over five years after the murders at the Hunter family residence. Anthony Garcia was back in Omaha, Nebraska. This time he was driving a black Mercedes SUV. He stopped by the residence of Chandra Butra, who, as I mentioned, was a physician at Crichton who Anthony did not get along with. Anthony tried to break in through the French doors at the back of her house at 2.16 p.m., but he heard the alarm and fled. Chandra was not in the house at that time. Ten minutes later, Anthony stopped at a restaurant and purchased a meal because nothing works up an appetite like attempted murder. About a half hour later, he searched his phone for Roger Brumbach, another physician who worked at Crichton. Again, Roger and William signed Anthony's termination letter. Anthony found his address and made his way to Roger's residence, which was occupied by Roger and his wife Mary. Anthony went to the front door and knocked or rang the doorbell. Roger answered. Anthony produced a Smith & Wesson SD9 semi-automatic pistol and pointed it at Roger. The men struggled for the weapon. Anthony fired the gun three times before the magazine release was pressed. This was probably a product of the struggle and not intentional. The magazine fell down by the front door. Roger had been struck with all three bullets. He was mortally wounded or dead at this point. Roger's wife Mary made her way to the front of the house, probably because she heard all the commotion. Anthony hit her with the gun so hard the weapon broke. He went to the kitchen and found a knife. He started attacking Mary as she attempted to defend herself. Ultimately, he killed her by stabbing her repeatedly in the right side of the neck. Before leaving the house, Anthony stabbed Roger in the neck as well. He never bothered to retrieve the magazine that had fallen near the front door. On May 14, two days after the murders, piano movers arrived at the Brumbach residence. They found the magazine by the front door and noticed the door was open. The circumstances felt a little bit more homicidal than their usual job, therefore they decided to call the police. The bodies were discovered 
after the police arrived. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. When the police realized that Roger Brumbach was a physician who worked at Crichton's pathology department, they made the connection between his murder and the murder of William Hunter's son. In addition, Chandra Butra found out about the murders and notified the police about the attempted break-in at her residence. The police realized that they had three separate incidents that could be connected to the same department at Crichton. They were fairly certain that someone who had worked in the pathology department was responsible for the murders. The police noticed that Anthony Garcia's name kept coming up as far as disciplinary problems. In addition to being connected to Crichton, the police realized that Anthony could be connected to the murders in March of 2008. The neighbor who had seen the silver CRV right before the first two murders said that the driver had olive skin. Anthony had a silver Honda CRV registered in his name from 2007 to 2009 and had olive skin. The police believed that Anthony was the killer. They caught up to him as he was driving in the state of Illinois. When he was arrested, his blood alcohol content was double the legal limit. Anthony had disposed of the pistol he used to kill Roger Brumbach and had purchased a 45 caliber pistol, which was in his vehicle when he was arrested. He also had an LSU lab coat, directions to Shreveport, Louisiana, a sledgehammer, a crowbar, and a box of rubber gloves. The police believed that he was planning on killing the LSU employees who fired him before bringing an end to his own life. Anthony was eventually convicted in connection with all four murders and sentenced to death. Now moving to my analysis. When Anthony was young, he was described as a loner who had no friends. As he grew older, people noticed he never established romantic relationships either. Eventually, he spent a lot of time with exotic dancers. He even confessed the 2008 murders to one of them after she told him that she was a bad girl 
and only liked bad boys. I guess he was trying to prove that he was really a bad boy. Anthony had a reading disability, migraine headaches, and was treated for depression. Eventually, he developed a severe drinking problem, which would persist for many years. He had homicidal thoughts, he was angry, and he felt worthless and hopeless. He was committed to mental health facilities on more than one occasion and was treated on an outpatient basis several times. He told one mental health clinician that he could not make the negative thoughts stop. It's like the thoughts were not his own. On at least one occasion, he attempted to end his own life. Anthony's co-workers and supervisors repeatedly had problems with his behavior. At various times, he was described as lazy, arrogant, incorrigible, dangerous, lacking in basic knowledge, immature, rude, paranoid, antagonistic, disrespectful, belligerent, and contentious. On the bright side, no one can call him forgettable. One assessment that I find interesting came from the psychiatry residency program at LSU. Faculty initially found Anthony to be kind, well-mannered, and possessing a nice personality. Later, they would change their minds, but I find it interesting that out of two pathology residencies, the family practice residency and the psychiatry residency, it was the psychiatry residency that made the most inaccurate assessment of Anthony's personality. I think this may explain why there are a non-negligible number of psychiatrists who are not very good at psychotherapy and are described on occasion as arrogant, condescending, and incompetent by the clients who they treat. It's a frightening testament to the inadequacy of mental health assessment. Throughout Anthony's career, his supervisors at the residency programs were highly sensitive to the fact that if they dismissed Anthony, his career would be negatively affected. They were reluctant to fire him because they felt badly about him losing the investment of time and money he made in medical school. They empathized strongly with Anthony, and less so with the public, who he would be treating. Eventually, they all made the right decision, but it worries me that they were so protective of Anthony and less concerned with the damage he could cause. I find it interesting that other than the passing mentions, the faculty in the residency programs did not think that Anthony was a good suspect in the murders. Once again, we see what may be a lack of insight on the part of the supervisors and giving Anthony the benefit of the doubt. They recognized they had some type of personality disturbance, but they did not connect that with vindictiveness or homicidal aggression. Moving to the next section, here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Anthony Garcia never took responsibility for any of his crimes. During his court proceedings, he often pretended to be asleep, like he couldn't face the shame or was simply trying to be intractable. Item number two, Anthony held a grudge against the people at Crichton for many years. He was fired in 2001, yet returned to Omaha to commit murders in both 2008 and 2013. It's very unusual to see an offender, even one with pronounced narcissistic traits, maintain a homicidal grudge for that long. Item number three, Anthony's neighbor said that one time he mowed the lawn wearing a full hazmat suit. Maybe this behavior was to attract attention or because of paranoia. Perhaps it's some type of metaphor based on the idea that they are toxic and dangerous, like the suit is not to protect them from the environment, but to protect the environment from them. Item number four, Anthony's parents pushed him quite a bit to become a physician. He wanted to be a mathematician, a police officer, or a lawyer. 
He even applied to the Los Angeles Police Department at one time. Many serial killers have an interest in police work. Anthony was simply not intelligent enough to be a physician. It took him an extra year to finish medical school, and his grades were still not that good. A staff member at the medical school testified that Anthony was permitted entry into the program due to his ethnicity. Item number five, Anthony may have had concerns that he wasn't as masculine as he should have been, and he may have had a distorted view of masculinity. For example, Anthony tried to impress an exotic dancer by confessing to murder. He owned a Ferrari F355, even though he had a massive amount of debt. He would eat a head of lettuce as if he was biting into an apple and drink directly from containers of milk. He wanted to be a police officer, and he prescribed himself testosterone despite having no medical reason for taking it. Now moving to my final thoughts. Anthony was pushed into an occupation that he could not handle, and rather than acknowledging his failure, he blamed everyone else. As they told him how to correct his behavior, he became increasingly angry at them. He never accepted responsibility. He never looked at himself and thought that maybe he should make some type of change. He possessed a dangerous combination of alcohol use, narcissism, paranoia, vindictiveness, and self-destructiveness. His role as a physician protected him from scrutiny and gave him plenty of time to carry out his revenge. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.